Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Commitment Matters. Happy New Year! We hope you found rest and joy over the holiday season and that you're back at it and have hit the ground running. We sure have here at the pod. We're coming out strong with this first episode, tackling some weighty issues that belong on your radar screen. While we normally try each year to give you a forecast of what to expect coming out of D.C. that will impact your work life, many of you felt that was especially important this year, given the, um, shall we say, noticeable shift going on in D.C. of late. Now, regardless of your personal or professional politics, I'm sure you've seen at least one headline in the last few months that has caused your blood to boil, your fear to rise or your mouth to loudly holler, what the actual, what? And while parts of Washington appear to thrive on chaos, sometimes objects that you think are supremely clear and that we definitely should fear, sometimes those things are far more nuanced than they first appear. So we called in the big gun today to talk about how so many things that can seem to be swirling around the nation's capital, how those things could impact our business. Steve Gottheim is here. He might just be my favorite Steve. He's definitely my favorite conversation partner when it comes to legal issues impacting our industry. And best of all, he works for you as general counsel of the American Land Title Association. In this first of two episodes with Steve, we mainly focus on recent decisions and potentially pending issues before the Supreme Court. How does an EPA case potentially impact Dodd-Frank, for example? What happens if the funding structure of the CFPB is found to be unconstitutional? So we take it slow with these concepts to really lay the groundwork. But if you'll stick with us, stepping through that tall grass, this episode will help you understand what to watch for and predict what certain decisions could practically mean for your daily work life. So with that, Please enjoy my conversation with the, I'm going to go ahead and say it, the brilliant Steve Gottheim. Steve Gottheim, welcome back to Commitment Matters. Thank you for having me, Mary. Well, this is perfect timing. Thank you for coming back. As you know, I reached out last fall and said, listen, I know we have to get this midterm done so that we can see how things are going to shape up for DC for the next couple of years. I should make a note for everyone that we're recording this on January 5th. And even though the midterm had a fairly clear outcome, we don't have anything established yet clearly in the House. So I want to talk with you about that later. But just a note for listeners, some of this conversation will be time sensitive. It's certainly an interesting time here in D.C. I think when and if the mess going on in the House in terms of their ability to actually form a functioning House of Representatives actually occurs at some point ever doesn't really change, I think, for us, the majority of what we think is likely to happen in D.C. this year, just given the reality of divided government, given the push towards a more imperial presidency and the use of agencies as tools of policy and kind of the directive that a lot of the federal agencies have from the White House to do more for the American people and to really push the limits of their congressional authority. Well, and I love that you teed it up that way because those are some of the topics we really want to focus on today. We'll make a commitment to everybody that if it comes back that something very strange happens in the house that changes any of this, we'll we'll come on back on together and append this. But 
So far as we know, everything we are going to talk about today will continue to have relevancy. And especially when we get into the Supreme Court looking at exactly what you just touched on, what is the appropriate role and size and scope of the executive branch. And SCOTUS is really starting to look at that under what's commonly referred to as the major questions doctrine. There are some people who have been following this loosely, some like you have been following much tighter. And I think it's time to really focus people's attention in on this matter because it's a pretty critical issue for those of us in the real estate world, in the housing world. So let's start there if we can. What does everybody need to understand about what the court is deciding? What's sort of the general lay of the land with regard to the case? And let's just really flesh this all out for everybody. Sure. So the concept of the major question doctrine is this notion that when a federal agency is putting out a regulation that has significant economic or political impacts, that they need to be doing so with clear congressional authority to put out that piece of regulation. It's got a lot of attention in the last year because of the role that it played in the decisions that the Supreme Court put out around a number of the COVID mandates that came out in 2020, whether it was the eviction moratorium put in place by the Trump administration or the OSHA employee vaccination requirement put in place by the Biden administration, really came to a head with the at the end of last term with the West Virginia versus EPA case, which dealt with the clean power plan, the kind of ongoing effort of the EPA to figure out how to incorporate greenhouse gas emissions into the types of power projects that it approves or doesn't approve. And we can get to, to each of those in time as, as you'd like, Mary. But the, you know, the notion of the major question doctrine goes back further. There are cases really starting in the mid-90s that really start the process of developing this idea. But it really, again, came to a head last year with these three decisions that form the backbone of this doctrine now. And so for any federal agency looking to wield its regulatory authority, they are really having to second guess themselves and start to ask the question of how tightly construed is my congressional intent or my congressional authorization? How specific is the authorization I have? And then if not, how much do I need to do when it comes to the Administrative Procedures Act to really build the case to talk about why this is an appropriate regulation that fits into the mandate that I've been given by Congress. Well, let's pause there for just a second so that people understand. Part of that, my guess is Congress has been intentionally vague in some of these areas, leaving it to the agency or bureau to intentionally put all of the I's and T's out and then cross them. And in some cases, it seems like maybe these that Congress did try to shore these laws up pretty tightly and the agency or bureau or entity went further. And, and so I think it, it's worth some looking at how all this came about so that people can really understand how we got to where we are. Even with the way that congressional bills, a lot of times, you know, we recently passed a federal spending bill in December that's, you know, thousands of pages long. And so you think thousands of pages for a bill, Dodd-Frank was over a thousand pages as a piece of legislation. You think, well, they must have really thought through every single word in there, and it's very specific and very particular. And, and oftentimes, it's just the opposite of that. What you see with a lot of the congressional authority statements that come into new regulations or serve as the basis for regulation, oftentimes, they can be based on somewhat generic statements of authority, right? 
you know, the ability to write regulations as needed to implement this section. And, or in the case of the eviction moratorium case, the authority of the Surgeon General through the CDC to take all necessary precautions to prevent the transmission of, of a pathogen. So you get these very, very broad statements of policy. And what the court is saying with as they've implemented and utilized this major questions doctrine more forcefully in the way that they've analyzed these regulations is they're saying when it's a really, really big issue, something that's going to cost the country a lot of money or really impact people's personal liberty dramatically, you need a much more specific congressional authorization, right? If Congress had said, thou have the authority to prevent evictions for, in the case of pandemics that you've declared, the court would have gone the other way in the eviction moratorium case. It's not that they said the policy is something that, that could never have happened. It's just that the congressional authority wasn't quite there for that action. And so we're going to continue to see the analysis will have to constantly look at this dynamic between how specific is the authority. And there are a lot of statutes that matter to title professionals across the country and financial services professionals across the country where this authority is very specific. And so when it's more specific, courts are going to give significantly more deference to the ability of, a, of an agency to take action there. But where it is less specific, where it is more general, or where the action that the agency wants to take is a little bit not directly square in the hole that was drilled by Congress, that's where courts are going to be more concerning when it looks at these cases and when it looks at these claims. And so for a federal agency, they really have to you know really think through what are the authorities I have what are my specific congressional authorizations? And really, how far afield am I going to be willing to go in the furtherance of a mission that I have, whether it's a political mission driven by the politicians in the White House or in Congress, or whether it's you know something more driven by the regulators themselves and the career staff at the regulators? Well, and so do these three cases kind of work together or do they stand separately? And the reason I ask is this, you know, I was watching the other ones but the first one that really got my attention in a big way was the EPA one. And I think maybe the delimiter in my mind might have been, okay, these were, the others were kind of more recent, more pandemic related. We had seen some things going on, some questions like that in the state. So they kind of rhymed. But the EPA one for me, and maybe we should talk about that a little more in depth, was sort of the attention grabber because it really was about not sort of emergency power authority, or at least not, there was some more reliability perhaps baked into that one and that really got my attention. I'd love for you to give a much better <laughs> informational description than I just did of that. Unlike the pandemic-related cases, obviously, those scenarios were focused on rules coming out of the administrations, both the Trump and the Biden administration, that were really trying to, even admittedly of their own statements, stretch the authorities given to try to achieve these public health ends. And then, you know, at least in the case of the continuation of the eviction moratorium, continue that even past the time where, you know, even the administration would have said that, you know, maybe it was not necessarily in the emergency stage of of the pandemic. But the EPA case is again one that really looks at authorizing statutes that have been on the books for, you know, not just 50, 60 years, but never used. But it was a piece of statute that was used somewhat frequently. I mean, 
part of the bread and butter of what the EPA does is looking at the Clean Air Act and saying, how do we make sure that we look at known pollutants that could cause public health benefits and find and encourage industry to reduce the emissions of those pollutions? And you know, as a country, we've lived with you know the notion of CAFE standards. These are the car efficiency standards where cars have to get certain miles per gallon and they have to have tailpipe emissions less than a certain amount. Those are part of our public lexicon for decades. And there were similar of those in the power generation world where you know there were limits on different emissions, whether it's sulfur, whether it's carbon dioxide being more of a focus, again, to, to deal with whether it's acid rate or to deal with greenhouse gas emissions. What happened in the EPA case is there had been a, a ongoing policy debate at the EPA since the mid-2010s, about 2014, 2015, when a previous Supreme Court said, no, EPA, despite what you think, you actually do have authority to regulate greenhouse gas emissions from power plants under the Clean Air Act. And so since that time, the EPA has been trying to figure out how to utilize its authority correctly. The latest version of, the, of, of it was the Clean Power Plan put out by the Biden administration, which echoed a, a number of policies that have been put in place by the Obama administration. But the essential part of it that matters here is, unlike other versions of emissions regulation, where you would say, hey, we think a healthy amount of sulfur going in the air from a power plant is one part per billion of emissions. And you'd say any power plant that can meet a one part per billion standard is fine, whether it's coal, whether it's gas, whether it's oil, whether it's solar, whether it's wind, whatever. we don't care as long as you're just not emitting beyond the emission limits. What the clean power plan tried to do is essentially state that there was never a scenario where a coal plant could meet a proposed level of emission limits, not by setting the limits, but by saying coal essentially couldn't do it. Then the only way to do it is to go to something that is otherwise reduced emissions like natural gas. And so what the court kind of looked at there is both a, a stretch of the reading of the congressional authority that the EPA had to implement a plan like that, and then packing on to it again, this idea of, yes, you did have congressional authority, but you, you what you're doing is kind of outside of it. The other cases that we talked about in the pandemic are much more clearly looking at these broad congressional authorities and saying, you just don't even have the authority that you think you have here. These policies, no policy could have been enacted by the, under these authorities that would have met what you're trying to do. So it, it is a little different than the pandemic cases, but it, it kind of serves in that purpose where they're looking at this idea of kind of squaring this tortuous reading of the authorizing statute. Yeah, and I think that one really got my attention because if you start to then extrapolate, if it's held the way we think it will be held, feel free to talk about that, then we have to start wondering, okay, what are the corollaries in our world? Let's look at TRID. Was it too broad, not broad enough, too narrow, just the right amount of specific? What about RESPA? What about a lot of things that we work within. And so now that we kind of have a basic understanding of that EPA case and, and what their court's looking at, sort of, if you would, port it over into something analogous for us. Yeah. So the EPA case of the major question doctrine is really this one part of this continuum of the way courts look at different authorities given to federal agencies with for their regulatory powers. And there's also a concept, and you'll hear it in this entire conversation, around what's called Chevron deference. And, and the court is looking more directly at Chevron deference in this current term and 
Most legal scholars think it's going to continue to get whittled down, just like the major questions doctrine is whittling down some of that deference. But in its sharpest terms, Chevron deference was the idea that a court should give high deference to a federal agency interpreting its own authority under a statute, right? It should be very skeptical of saying somebody could come in and say, hey, the congressional authority says X, and that means the agency that the challenge whether an agency can do X. So thinking about that, what you're really looking at from these cases in, in this continuum between Chevron deference and the major questions doctrine is having to un- a better understanding of what are the actions that a regulator is taking? How tightly connected are they to a very clear congressional intent for them? And then what process did they use to put out these regulations? How close did they follow the Administrative Procedures Act and consider the notes and comments that were provided? So now if we look at it from our perspective of, of the laws that really impact the title industry, right, we're really going to be focused on Dodd-Frank and a whole host of parts that, you know, mostly known as Title 10 and Title 14 of Dodd-Frank. Title 10 was the part of the bill that created the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. It's also, you'll see in the language, it's called the CFPA, the Consumer Financial Protection Act. And then Title 14 is a whole host of areas around mortgage, updating the mortgage rules after the financial crisis of 2008, which is where we get a lot of our other rules that got put in place in the early days of the CFPB from 2012 to 2015, trade really being the last of the mortgage rules for those of you that remember back then. So if we think about it, the major questions doctrine is really looking at the question of, think about it from the CFPB perspective. Did Congress give the CFPB a clear direct mandate to write a rule to say, create a qualified mortgage and say, these are the loans that should be bought in the United States? Did Congress give a clear direct mandate to draft a piece of regulation that combined the disclosures under RESPA and the Truth and Lending Act into one. That's the type of analysis then that a court would really want to be looking at for somebody that wanted to challenge, say, the probity of, of doing a rule like TRID. There are very clear areas of our world where the congressional authority is probably very, very clear, right? When RESPA was passed in the 1970s, it clearly stated that there needed to be a form developed to create a uniform settlement statement, and HUD did that. It would have been pretty hard, even under the most conservative version of the Supreme Court that's out there in this version, looking at the major question doctrine to say that the HUD one developed by HUD in the 70s was done in a way that was unauthorized by its congressional authorizing statute. Similarly, I would say it's probably hard for somebody to come in and say, to challenge the authority of Congress of the CFPB to write the new trend documents and the trend rules. Very clear, explicit section of Dodd-Frank, I think it was section 1032 or 33, that looked at and said, no, actually within a certain amount of time after the passage of this act, CFPB, you have to do this, which is why we had that very tight deadline to get that done in, in 2015. So it'd be a lot more challenging to attack those kind of core mortgage rules that came out of Dodd-Frank, just given the very specific congressional intent and congressional language authorizing the CFPB to do that. I'm just saying from a, a textual argument of, of attacking them, let alone whether or not you want somebody could attack them for constitutional reasons and about the CFPB itself. <laughs> but where the world of the CFPB could get more difficult under a, a world where you look at the major questions doctrine is that the CFPB has a very broad authority statement to be able to go and punish unfair deceptive acts and practices under its UDAP authority. And you know, a CFPB that took a very, very broad reading of what constitutes unfair, much different than, say, anything that had ever been put into the statute or into the FTC's versions of UDAP or state UDAPs, 
that could be a lot different of a question for a CFPB. And so for the current folks at the Bureau and, and Director Rohit Chopra, they've really got to look at, you know, what are the congressional authorities that I have? And, you know, when is it going to be worth it to really utilize the leverage of these broad authorities that they potentially have to kind of address some market issues that they see? But those are going to be the questions that they have to ask, especially as they look at regulation and the like, which is, I think, part of the reason why you don't see the Bureau doing very many regulations right now. They're doing stuff in enforcement. They're doing stuff in putting out circulars and bulletins and things like that, trying to move markets through other means, but they're not really writing new regulations, either one, because it's very slow, or two, they're, what they want to do doesn't have that good, clear congressional authority, and they are going to try to use other ways to leverage their power that don't open them up to that type of attack. Mm -hmm. Well, you've put a lot of threads out here and I want to pull on every one of them. And I'm afraid I'm going to forget. I probably will, but I know I want to ask you about this one, which is as someone who helped industry implement, let's use TRID as an example, or the reformed RESPA, whatever, we relied very heavily as a group focusing on implementation on Chevron deference. We always wanted to look to what our regulator had done and said before in the lane we're in or a similar adjacent lane was critical to us. And I I would imagine they internally have also been relying very heavily on the Chevron deference as a concept in practice. So if sort of they need to now begin to switch over and address things from a major questions doctrine perspective. I think I hear you saying that initially, at least they would curtail some of their activities a little bit, but would it also be incumbent upon Congress to then go back and be more specific and revise some of the lawmaking? Or how would you see that really working out? For a concern where there actually is a unclear set of congressional authorities or for like the EPA with old authorities or that hadn't been used ever in a long time, policymakers are going to have to really start looking at the need potentially to go back to Congress and ask for more specific authority, get more specific requirements out there to, to give them a little bit more and deeper cover for major policy decisions. But you know, let's use the trend example that you were using to kind of highlight the concepts of Chevron deference, the major question deference, and, and the like. There's a component of RESPA that says, under RESPA, you have to offer a good faith estimate of your costs and charges, right? It, it becomes the basis of the GFE under the old HUD regime. It then became the basis of the lo- loan estimate and the tolerances under the trend regime. Mm-hmm. Right now, again, we have a, a world, you know, again, the beginning of the RESPA world, a GFE just had to be your best guess, right? You didn't really have any testing to it. All of a sudden, we get into the mid-2000s and you get this tolerances concept, which tries to say good faith estimate at least comes in within some striking distance of the final numbers. And that tolerance concept makes its way into trend and continues there. If someone were to challenge and say, the tolerances are without authority, CFPB and HUD previously didn't have the authority to do tolerances, the Bureau would come back and say, listen, we have a clear congressional authority that says we have to create a concept that creates a good faith estimate. Courts should defer to our definitions and analysis of what it means to have good faith out there, especially when we've put it out for public comment and we've considered the public comment and notice that we've been given. And a court would likely come back and say, yeah, that's probably right. We're going to give very strong deference to the Bureau on that one. It'd be really hard to challenge 
the concept of tolerance is, especially at the at the levels that they're set in these rules. If the levels were set really, really ridiculous, you know, you had to have actual perfect estimate numbers for all these things every time or pay massive penalties on if you were wrong, that might be a different story, right? Now we're going to get to a different level of what does it really mean to be good faith and a little bit different balancing of these equities in this space. If utilizing the concept of a good faith estimate and a disclosure of uniform settlement statement, the Bureau came out and said, we're actually going to scrap this TRID document. And instead, what we're going to do is actually just put in place a series of maximum charges that people can charge in mortgage transactions around based on this whole set of parameters that we come up with so that title insurance can never be more than X and the appraisal could never be more than Y. A court would now, you know, now you'd be in that major questions doctrine. So, you know, whereas the first part we were really talking about getting that Chevron deference and where courts are going to be much more willing to say, even if they don't agree with the policy decision that the agency made, they're going to back it up and, and be okay with it. Now where you're really working well across an area where not just the authority isn't there, right? Again, the two key sections of RESPA say disclosures, not price controls. But you also have congressional history that says in the 70s that said, originally said no to price controls when it came to passing RESPA. That would be a much different scenario, probably one where, again, a court would come in and utilize the major question doctrine and say that's the type of interpretation that a agency should not be allowed to make because it's not backed by the congressional authority and it's not backed by the statute. And so there would not you know, be something that an agency could do there. That's kind of the way to look at kind of where the different, in my mind, the differences lie. And so when you think about it from the trend perspective or any of those mortgage rules, the qualified mortgage, any of the appraisal modernization rules that came out of Dodd-Frank, you're really looking at a whole set of rules that have very, very specific congressional intent in the, out there. And if the agency stays pretty close to that intent, CFPB is going to be pretty good on all of those rules. And it's going to be hard to challenge them, which is also why you have not seen very many challenges to any of those rules in court. You see challenges to the CFPB itself. You see challenges to some of the other rules that CFPB has put out in the last few years, whether it's the payday lending rule, whether it's the short dollar loan rule, the title lending stuff. But you don't see on the core stuff that was the subject of Dodd-Frank that had its own sections in Dodd-Frank. Those ones are pretty much, nobody's challenging them because it'd be a really strong quixotic quest to do that. Yeah. Well, and unwinding them practically would just be <laughs> back to, okay, what's the last thing we could rely on? It'd take us a while to even figure that out. And I'll have to say, now I don't watch the Bureau in everything, but I try to keep a, I certainly keep an eye on the stuff that's in our lane and the related lanes, like the payday lending and all that. And it's been my impression that they've done a pretty good job with at least the APA process, that doing the publications, doing the notifications, and they then at least talk to some of the things that came up during that comment period, whether or not you as a commenter feel like you were heard and it was addressed as can be a different matter. But they seem to play that part pretty by the book that I've seen. Am I missing anything there? No, it, it is really hard to do an APA challenge. Where you see the APA challenges work successfully on agency rules, it's typically because either an agency tried to do something with an emergency rule or did just totally ignore comments that came in through and didn't even acknowledge it in the final rule that was out there. The Bureau has always, you know, they, they've got a very strong group of regulatory attorneys and, and they've got a strong general counsel's office that has always put them on the right track. I mean, you know, most of their original staff at the Bureau 
came from the Federal Reserve. And so they knew exactly what they were doing or from the FDIC. And so you know, these were traditional bank regulators who knew the process that you had to go through. And they followed that process and they built good foundational requirements into how those processes work. And again, it's really hard just to do an APA challenge, especially if they actually follow the basic concepts of publishing a rule, considering the comments, taking the time to consider the comments, and then publishing a final rule. So I've been asked by listeners about this topic quite a bit lately, and they ask the question this way. If some of this stuff starts to fall away, how do we keep from having complete chaos? It sounds like, at least in the real estate sector, you feel like, regardless of how this works out, we probably aren't going to see a a lot of upheaval, at least retrospectively. From the major question side of things, probably not. But the, the, the worry that's out there really comes around this. Now, there was an original challenge a few years ago over the single director concept of the CFPB and whether or not the single director was constitutionally infirm. And the Supreme Court said, yes, it was. But the fix for that is to just say that, yes, the president can remove the director at will. And now we've seen that happen where Kathy Craninger resigned the day Joe Biden took office and Joe Biden announced his own political appointee to be director of the CFPB. But the latest challenge that is kind of going to the Supreme Court right now is on the idea that the funding mechanism for the CFPB is constitutionally infirm. And this is a case, the CFPB versus the Consumer Financial Services Association of America, CFSA is the trade association for payday lenders, short-term small-dollar loan lenders. Mm-hmm. And so in this type of case, the Fifth Circuit recently ruled that, yes, the, the funding mechanism or the Bureau is protected from congressional appropriations by being able to draw its entire budget from the Federal Reserve was problematic. The challenge will be with a case like this is that if the Supreme Court agrees with the Fifth Circuit, and it's not clear that they will. The Fifth Circuit is one of the more conservative circuit courts out there. That a constitutional infirmity in the in the structuring of the CFPB does call into question everything that they've done. And it's hard to just ratify all of those actions. Under the single director challenge, right, you could appoint a brand new director who could go back and ratify all the things that the past constitutionally infirm director did. And that could serve to to deal with all of those issues. And that's a lot of what happened after the SELA law case. But with the funding scenario, it's actually not very easy to quickly fix the funding solution where the court could say, fine, a direct, whoever is the director just has to be removable at will by the president. Great. That's a fix that doesn't really need anybody to do anything else. It's a self-executing fix in that way. If a court said, no, a agency like the CFPB has to be on congressional appropriations, well, first off, Congress has not appropriated them. So the minute that decision came out, or actually 30 days after that decision came out, when it is certified as a final decision, the agency would likely not have the authority to draw the money that it's already drawn into its accounts. Maybe it would be allowed to keep the money that's already in its account so it could continue operation for a small period of time afterward. But it would have to have this period of time to try to deal with getting a a budget request put together, getting it appropriated, getting put through Congress. We're in a cycle right now where Congress does not finalize its appropriations until the absolute last second of the year, where they utilize that pass this bill or you're not going home for Christmas mindset. And so they finally get some of those things done. So it could be very challenging again to put all those back into place. And it's also not clear that there's a way for the agency to ratify its actions. 
if it was unconstitutional when they put out all these decisions because of the funding and they have not fixed their funding issues, it is unclear that a director could constitutionally fix all of those issues by ratifying them, by re-releasing them, or doing any of those types of normal things that an agency could do to fix a mistake that it made in the past. And so you, you could be left in a position where if Congress has not prepared to act quickly after a decision that goes against the CFPB and the Supreme Court on that case, that all of these rules could be called into question. And it could create a scenario where, you know, for a mortgage lender, they'll have to make a decision. Do I continue to use trade forms? Do I continue to underwrite based on the QM rule? Or do I not do that because of the fear that by doing something that was maybe, you know, if the trade rule is not in place and therefore the LE and the CD are not legally authorized forms, you might be opening up a can of worms for any borrower that you use them with to get extra defenses in foreclosure or things like that. So, you know, you open up a lot of worry as a lender to just keep going with the flow without some authority and without some assurances that they're not going to be the ones holding the bag later on if a court says actually the use of all these forms was against the law and there was a constitutional issue here and all these people get extra rights because of it. Well, and it's so different than like what we're looking at with the EPA case, because in this case, it gets a little circular because, you know, I remember, and I'm sure you do too, at the time that Dodd-Frank was being drafted and versioned, at that time, Congress was very clear on the fact that they did not want it to be a matter of congressional appropriation. And they even said why, as they were coming out of the crisis, right? They didn't want, I'm using air quotes here, so everybody bear with us. They didn't want the funding of the Bureau to be vacillating with different majorities. They wanted some consistency that the market could rely on. That was the talking points at the time. And so it's interesting though, as you layer sort of the thoughts of the EPA case and the major questions doctrine in general, on top of that, you go, well, Congress was clear in their intent for this funding piece, but it turns out that may be unconstitutional. So they may have to go back to their drawing board, but the Bureau in the meantime was operating within the confines that everybody intended for it to do when Dodd-Frank passed. And so it's sort of a, where does the music stop? Like it just, does Congress just have to go back and tidy everything up? What the Bureau has done in the meantime, questions aside, which is, as you pointed out, sort of a bit of a practical nightmare. How does the Bureau continue? How can Congress tool them up for that? Or can they? It becomes a big challenge. You, you, your point is well taken, right? This is actually clearly the explicit intent of Congress, right? It is actually the opposite of the major question doctrine. You have a very clear congressional intent to do it this way, but for other reasons, they may or may not be able to, to do that. The challenge will be for Congress and for for a lot of folks is, again, this is not the simple, quick, easy fix type of thing to just put somebody on to appropriations in this space. The other challenge is, and this is probably a challenge more for the people who believe that, who agree with the Fifth Circuit and think that the CFPB should be considered unconstitutional for the funding side of things, is there's a lot of other regulators that are not on appropriations. And there is no appetite from either the regulated entities that those other regulators oversee, like the Federal Reserve or the OCC or the other bank regulators or other types of groups like that, to see those regulators go on appropriations. You are now getting a scenario where maybe 
where also, you know, people that maybe don't love the CPB would be in a position trying to push for protecting it because they actually do want things to continue to work the way they are for other reasons. And that becomes a challenge. The other thing of this is with the CELA law case with the single director, again, there were a couple of other regulators that had single directors and the like, but nobody cared if those also got washed away with that decision. You know, nobody was crying foul that the FHFA director also was subject to challenge after the CELA law case. Right. But again, people will be upset if the Federal Reserve is somehow told that they have to be on appropriations in some form. Who knows how that would actually even work, how you could even functionally work that given the role of the Federal Reserve. Right. And then you get this scenario where, where you create these strange bedfellows mentalities around this. I think that's the challenge that the Supreme Court's really going to focus on in this because even the, the Fifth Circuit kind of gives short shrift to this idea that you got to treat all of these regulators the same then. They kind of try to create a differentiation between them by this notion of saying, well, the CFPB is double insulated because they're insulated because they're, the Federal Reserve is also not on budget. And so therefore you get two layers of insulation. It's that two layers that's the problem. It's so subjective. <laughs> you know, that's like the type of argument my kid would use. So I'm not really sure that that really will play out, but we will see. The Fifth Circuit, again, is a more conservative circuit, but it was also at the forefront of some of these cases that became the challenges to pandemic policy because those are the types of areas where people want to bring those cases where they think they're going to get the better outcome in that case. And you know, the Supreme Court is much more conservative than it was in the past, given the, the recent changes to its makeup. And so there's a lot of belief that maybe now is, you know, now there is a makeup that would, would abide by this and would abide by that. It's unclear when the court considered the PHH case in, in the DC circuit, then judge, now Justice Kavanaugh, kind of gave just passing glance at the entire idea of this constitutional argument and basically ignored it. And so whether or not that's a clue of he felt like there was no constitutional issue or he just didn't want to deal with it in his dissent is a tough one. We will see where that goes. The court seems to be welcoming these cases though. And they took this case up, or at least they're inviting opinions on the CFPB case. They are speeding that case submission up. We should have, I believe it will get submitted for conference at the end of January. If they decide on their first conference to take it, there is a very outside shot it gets heard this year, but more likely sometime in the 2023-24 term, especially if they don't immediately grant cert on it immediately. So we'll see. There's a good chance that they won't grant cert immediately because there's a couple of other cases going on in, in one in New York and think there's one maybe in the Ninth Circuit. And so a lot of times the Supreme Court likes to see a split in circuits since they might be waiting for one of those splits to, for a split to happen here. They might just hold it over and relist it for a long time. And that could also, again, just kick this can down the curb. The other impact of kicking it down the curb is President Biden potentially opportunities to change the makeup of the court. I mean, yes, he has named one justice, but you know whether or not there's other retirements or other vacancies that are created that allow him opportunities to reshape the court. Those are things that will have to get taken into, into account here. But it's not a good op chance that it gets taken up this term. It's a lower probability just because of the timing, the way these other cases are moving through the other court systems and the desire usually to get more than just one challenge put into this into the bucket here. I, I would think this if they're going to take it, it gets taken up next term. 
and that you don't get an announcement until later in the spring, maybe end of February or March, depending on what the Second Circuit case is going to happen to do. But there's certainly a lot of those challenges, and then we'll see where the Supreme Court goes from there. Well, and I know that a lot of people who are proponents of these sorts of movements are hoping to force Congress into, in their words, act like a Congress again, get Congress to have sort of a, you know, tighter reins on the doings of government. I think a lot of people think that's a good idea. I will just, with an asterisk, say right now, Congress is having its own trouble becoming a Congress or at least a house. So they might need the extra time to get ready if they're going to have to go back and redo a lot of work of old. Yeah, it's going to be a much tougher lift if it goes that way and it goes and the Fifth Circuit gets affirmed. I mean, one of the things that people may remember is prior to the Sela Law case with the single director, there was a great push in Congress, especially from the Republican side, but also from industry to have the Bureau transformed from a single director into a, some sort of bipartisan commission similar to the way the FTC works out. I think today, maybe some people would think the FTC doesn't work as well as a bipartisan commission as they thought it used to. But what we also saw is that when the Supreme Court did rule in, in favor against the Bureau in, in SELA law and created a remedy that said just removable at will, that actually took the wind out of the sails of the commission structure people. And it's actually made that ability even harder to deal with and, and harder to get passed in Congress. And so the question will be, if Congress does have to act and step in and fix the Bureau, it's clear that they'll have to do something to fix the Bureau. No lender is going to accept a world where all of these loans that they've done since 2015 are potentially in violation of the law. There'll have to be something done. Yeah, You think they're scared of Ron? Oh my gosh. How about every loan you've done since 2015 has a problem now? Right. They'll have to do something, which means you know, Congress will have to figure out what to do, which is a challenge. But more importantly, you have a, a Republican Party that has been dead set against the CFPB for its entirety of existence. Yep. And whether they are the current majority, at least in the House, should there ever be a, a House of Representatives that gets established this term, how you get something passed by a House like that without essentially letting the Democrats, inviting the Democrats to be the majority of the votes for that bill, which is a challenge for many Speaker of the House. So you know, even if Kevin McCarthy wins on his 48th vote, that would kind of sink him pretty badly. So there are a lot of political realities that would make fixing that a successful challenge really, really hard, which also could play into the way a court might look at a decision like this, knowing that there is no constitutional way to fix the situation and knowing that there is going to be a lot of other effects of a decision, even if they maybe are sympathetic to the constitutional argument there, I think makes it even more likely that they're probably not going to just jump in quickly and do something quick here, that they're going to have to give a lot more thought to the ramifications of what they do before the opinion gets put out in public. Yeah, it's not one you can just say this belongs in the purview of the states and let it go with that. Like you're really going to have to have an alternative. Yeah, you can't just kick it back down to a to a district court and say figure out the remedy. Or it's not like uh, you sit there and have a some sort of property law case where you sit there and say, actually, you know, a deed restriction that says X, Y, and Z means A, B, C, and then you fashion an order that says to the district court, go back and fix this issue now and rewrite a new deed that addresses this and all of those things. You can't do that with a constitutional claim like that. So you don't get to a position where a court could continue to do anything. And 
that will be, be the challenge just given how integrated CFPB rules have been to financial services, especially mortgage lending since 2014 at the earliest, 2013-14, including this you know, massive wave of refis that just went through. And that is going to weigh heavily on, on any court that's going to be out there looking at these cases. And I think you'll also see it'll create some strange bedfellows when it comes to if the court does grant cert, what will be the types of amicus briefs that you see? You know, Right now at the petition stage, the only two amicus briefs are from two different sets of attorney generals. There's the Democratic attorney generals that are all supporting the CFPB and the Republican ones that are all opposing it. But when you get to certs, if cert gets granted, you would expect to see a lot of, of amicus briefs from you know, a ton of different bedfellows, whether it's the Chamber of Commerce, whether it's Alta and the other groups in the real estate world, the mortgage bankers, the American bankers, all of these are going to have opinions and all these are going to have to express those concerns and all of them are going to express those concerns to the court that says, be careful what you do here, because if you do this, you might create all of these collateral effects. Thanks, Steve. I absolutely loved our conversation. And listeners, we'll be back in two weeks with part two of our conversation where we take on even more of DC. Now, I know we have some attorneys out there listening, and if you have some additional perspectives to share, please send us an email with your thoughts about the cases we covered. We'd love to hear from you, and our email address is linked in today's show notes. So until next time, remember, things are almost never as bad as they seem. And don't be the click that the bait is designed to reel in. Because information matters. Perspective matters. Nuance matters, and what you do really, really matters.